Hi everybody, Michael Davis here. Welcome to Bone to Pick. We are coming to you today from the President's Office here at Musicians Local 802 on West 48th Street in Midtown Manhattan. And I have, uh, I think we're going to have a very energizing discussion today and a really, um, I think, enlightening interview. Uh, this one is entitled Broadway Brass Roundtable. And I have asked five of my favorite brass players and five of the most successful brass players here in New York City to sit down and discuss all aspects of being a musician and playing a Broadway show. Uh, over the past couple of decades, Broadway has become really a focal point as far as the work we do as freelance brass players here in New York. And I've asked these gentlemen to kind of discuss all the various aspects from holding down a steady chair to subbing to breaking into Broadway to working with conductors and contractors and just all the aspects you, you kind of need to be aware of to be successful as a, as a musician here on Broadway. And without further ado, I think I'd like to introduce uh, these wonderful artists who've taken time out of their busy schedule today. And we will start to my far right, the man, the legend, uh, one of the great lead trumpet players anywhere in the world, uh, also, uh, also widely known for his maniacal cackle of a laugh that I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure we will be hearing today. Um, but all kidding aside, Mr. Bob Milliken, uh, he has literally uh, recorded and performed on uh, hundreds of CDs, tours, live performances. Uh, a short list includes Quincy Jones, Chick Corea, Barbara Streisand, Tony Bennett, Sammy Davis Jr., Bob Mincer, Louis Belson. His Broadway credits are equally impressive. He uh, was the first trumpet on the entire run of A Chorus Line, which spanned about 15 years. Also did the entire run of Hairspray, a very long-running big hit show. Uh, has performed Goodbye Girl. His most recent show was Nice Work, If You Can Get It, with Matthew Broderick. Continuing in the trumpet department, uh, the great Tony Cadlick, uh, probably the busiest trumpet player in New York these days. He has recently released his uh, debut big band CD, Around the Horn. He is on the faculty at Manhattan School of Music. Uh, he's toured and recorded with Frank Sinatra, Michael Jackson, Elton John, Luther Vandross, Steely Dan, to name a few. He is currently uh, holding the trumpet chair at Honeymoon in Vegas, uh, recently finished runs at Aladdin, Spider-Man, Adam's Family, and uh, the long-running Beauty and the Beast. And uh, to my left, our trombone department, one of my favorite gentlemen and one of the best trombone players uh, of all time here in New York, the great Keith O'Quinn, uh, literally recorded on thousands of commercials, t TV themes, motion pictures, CDs. Uh, he has been a charter member of the Maria Schneider Jazz Orchestra as well as the Bob Mincer Big Band. Uh, he's played lead trombone for Barbara Streisand for the past couple of decades. Um, his Broadway credits, he's currently holding the trombone chair at Kinky Boots. Uh, also has recently finished runs at Porgy and Bess, Fosse, uh, a few years back, How to Succeed in Business, Damn Yankees, Starlight Express. He's uh, a, a very long and extensive list of, uh, of Broadway credits. And to his left, uh, another wonderful trombone player, an incredibly versatile musician who uh, equally good on trombone, bass trombone, and tuba, Mr. Randy Andos. Uh, his recording and performing credits include James Taylor, Spyro Gyra, Celine Dion, Bon Jovi, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. He is currently holding the trombone and bass trombone chair at the big uh, mega hit Book of Mormon. Uh, also recently finished up runs at Adam's Family, Mary Poppins, uh, and a very long and extensive list. Uh, and last and certainly not least, um, a very highly regarded trumpet player uh, for many, many years, and he is the president of Local 802 here. Uh, and, in, and without 
without uh, getting too uh, involved in it, I just want to say he's done a remarkable job for all of us, uh, the constituents here as members of Local 802. He's really done a fantastic job, probably the best job in my 30-year uh, career here in New York. Um, he's a member of the American Federation of Musicians Executive Board, uh, Mr. Tino Gagliardi, President of 802. And Tino, first of all, I want to thank you for allowing us to... Uh, Occupy, occupy your office My here pleasure. today. So. Hey, man, just an opportunity to be with the cats again. You know, I you <laughs> well, I think I think just to get things rolling, I'd like everybody to kind of briefly just talk about your initial experiences with Broadway, um, maybe some of your memories, maybe fo hopefully fond memories of getting into Broadway. And, Bob, maybe if you don't mind, we'll start with you. I know you've uh, got the, probably the longest and most impressive list, but uh, as you look back on your time on Broadway, what are some of the things that uh, strike you as... As well, uh, I, I had to go right to the very first show that I did, which was Floor of the Red Menace. I believe that was in 1965, and I remember going to the... This was my personal uh, take on it, anyway. First of all, I was excited to get the job. Uh, I was recommended by a guy named Clyde Riesinger, who at that time was player around New York and a, and a very good trumpet player and I, and I had studied with him and there was a case, a clear case of like your teacher helping you as a as a pupil because he, he liked my playing and uh, so he recommended me for that job and a few other things but I'll, I'll never forget going to the rehearsal, the first day at the rehearsal and um, I saw this uh, trombone player, an Afro-American Afro gentleman and uh, I said, who's that? And somebody said, oh, that's J.J. Johnson. And of course, <laughs> I, J.J. was like one of my heroes, you know, growing up. And uh, uh, as it turned out, it was. And it was just amazing. He said in front of me the, the run of the show, which wasn't very long, but that, that was a trip. I got to know him and, you know, it's like working with an idol, you know. Yeah, what a cool memory that is. Yeah, that was great. Awesome. Tony, what about yourself uh, in terms of your... Um, I started subbing maybe 19... 88, and um, I think the first show I actually got <clears throat> was because Bob uh, was busy and he turned something down, and uh, <laughs> Jimmy Young said, uh, uh, yeah. who, do, who do I call? And Bob was nice enough to recommend me, yeah. and, and I did it, and um, the show opened on Thursday and it closed Saturday night. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> nonetheless, I appreciate the, the, the plug. <laughs> it was called a, a print... Uh, Prince of Central Park, and actually Keith was on that. But as well. some, but important people got to hear you, right? And, and uh, Don Tabeski was the uh, actually the arranger and yeah. the and the composer. So um, it kind of got my foot in the door at a fairly young age. So Definitely, I yeah. was very appreciative of, of that that job, and that was yeah, cool. almost Keith, thirty years. Keith, uh, remembering back to that show and some maybe some of your other memories of getting. Well, going. I kind of had a slow start with Broadway because I had never intended to do a show. I mean, it was the furthest thing from my mind when I came to New York, you know. But um, I was playing with Jerry Mulligan and starting to get pretty busy around town. And uh, it's 1977, I got my first call. And uh, the contractor, who I'm not going to mention his name, but uh, <laughs> offered me this show. And I was, I, I asked him if I could take a day to think about it. So I hung up and I thought for about 10 minutes. I thought, I don't want to take on that kind of responsibility. So I called him back and I told him I would, you know, I decided not to take it. And uh, the guy went completely berserk on me. <laughs> Basically told me I was finished, I'd never work again, uh, he'd never call me again, and he never did. <laughs> uh, but I mean, he, he made, 
he made Buddy sound like uh, Mr. Rogers, you know. <laughs> it was pretty pretty intense. So Buddy I Rich, that is for those yes, of you Buddy who are Rich. One of the famous music. So uh, uh, I didn't I didn't think about Broadway much for another few years, and then I got married, and uh, uh, Marty Grupp called me for the sh a show, and uh, it was 1981. And uh, so, you know, I was married. I was thinking about maybe traveling less. So I thought, and, and he told me Jim Pugh was going to do it, right? Mm. So I called Jim and I said, are you doing this? And he said, if you'll do it, I'll do it. Mm. So we, we both took the show. And uh, it was a show about Jackie Robinson called The First. Uh, mm. And um, the show was didn't last long, but... Uh, I, I I hated it. <laughs> I just couldn't I just couldn't get into the routine of being there eight shows a week, and so I quit. And uh, I didn't think it was a big deal, but I didn't get called again for like almost six years for a Broadway show. And so the first show that I actually took and and did for a while was Starlight Express, and uh, I got that because Robin Eubanks bailed out at the last minute and. Uh, and we had four trombones on that, it was, and it was a great experience. And from then on, I just kind of uh, fell into it, you know. That's awesome. Well, at least the uh, the Jackie Robinson, good trombone section between you and Jim. It doesn't, oh, doesn't yeah. get much better oh, no, than that. Oh, no, it's great. And just a great. side note, I, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, when I, I first got off the road and got into town, and, and, and you had put me, generously put me on the sub list at Starlight Express. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and I really appreciated that. That was kind of my first... Uh, Go around as well. So, uh, but thank you for that, uh, Randy. How about yourself? Uh, I was memories, playing huh? with this uh, guy named Maurice Hines, you know, the actor, singer, mm -hmm. dancer, and doing stuff in the Catskills. And then he got a show called Uptown. It's hot, and he graciously, or Bob Crancho was a contractor based where he took me and a sax player named Mike Walters from that little club date size band. And put us in the Broadway band, which was pretty cool. It was my first show as a as a regular. And like Frank West was playing lead alto, and mm. Cranshaw played bass, and Frank Owens was on piano, and uh, Benny Powell and Eddie Burt were the other two trombone players. Wow. So it was it was really kind of cool because I I didn't really have any of that type of experience, and the musical kind of was about the Apollo Theater, you know the beginning of it through, say, modern, like, Michael Jackson tunes at that point. And so I was playing with guys that played with Count Basie and were part of jazz history, and I, unfortunately, I didn't really appreciate it enough at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I really appreciate it now. I wish I could have asked them more questions about, well, what was your life really like? Because I was just kind of trying to make the notes, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, it didn't last long, but it was fun, and then I started subbing a lot on bass trombone. I think I, I subbed at Starlight for the two guys there and began working my way through it. Yeah, cool. Tina, I know we're going to tap into your uh, vast expertise here in a second with our next question, but I wanted to give you a chance to talk about your playing career, which you had done a lot of Broadway, and what, what was that like for you? Uh, well, I, I called Bob. <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, that's not untrue. I think the uh, first show I ever subbed on was uh, Chorus Line oh, yeah? back in the 80s, and I remember... Uh, talking with Bob, and um, I kept getting calls to go out and do these tours and everything. And Bob came to me one day and says, "You know, 
take it to all. The only thing tours lead to are more tours. If you want to work in this town, you've got to make a commitment. You've got to stick around. So I went on the road. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I for that once in a while call. Yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> but I turned out Bob was absolutely right. I mean, what happened was I started doing a string of uh, tours, you know, national tours, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. and, um, and finally, I just, just made, made, made the commitment that Bob suggested I had done several years earlier and really stuck around. I did a lot of subbing in the beginning. My first show was Lamb Chop on Broadway, and it ran two weeks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but then I started doing a string of like taking over for people. For instance, I ended up with the chair at um, How to Succeed in Business with Matthew Broderick. Um, then I went over to um, Victoria with Julie Andrews. Um, it took quite. It took a while before I started getting calls. You know, as a first call for shows, but. You know, I did. It, it, it was an interesting experience for me. I enjoyed playing. Um, I think I might have enjoyed something a little more hmm. because of the the versatility that's involved and in the ability to learn new stuff. And it was a lot easier to keep on top of your chops, basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cool. Well, let's jump in and talk about kind of the infrastructure of of Broadway and the orchestras that exist in the theaters. And there's no better person than you, Tina, to talk about this. But maybe you can explain. And you've, you've like I said in the intro, you've helped uh, us as a as a as a union and as a, an organization to really uh, get a stronghold on this, as it seemed to be sliding pretty mm -hmm. dramatically yeah. over the last couple of decades. Can you talk about the infrastructure of minimums? Um, I would like Bob to also uh, weigh in a little bit, uh, historically speaking, about walkers and how, what that was and how that existed. But any just kind of a broad-based question there about it. It's a broad-based, yeah, it is. It is. Um, you know, the minimum structure on Broadway has been a tenant of the Broadway agreement since the very beginning, where basically the minimums are, you know, the, the, the number of musicians that are appropriate for a show are basically based on the size of the theater, so mm -hmm. the bigger the theater, the larger mm -hmm. minimums, and those have been attacked since I think the first time we went on strike was in the 70s, and you probably remember that, um, and it was over the minimums, and we lost about 30% of the minimums then. We lost another 30% of the minimums in 2004, 2003 when we went on strike that time. So it's been a constant battle to maintain the minimums. The attacks that we received as musicians was basically we were forcing the artistic part of the show to hire musicians that they don't need, etc. Um, the attack of being called feather bedding was, was rampant with management. Um, so we came up with this idea of what we now call special situations, which happens to be the bane of my existence right now, um, um, where they can come in and basically uh, make, because of set criteria in the contract, make an argument for why they don't have to hire a full Broadway orchestra for whatever shows they're doing. One of the things that I think was important that you were able to do as president was you were able to get the minimums locked in for a 10-year period, if I'm, if I'm speaking well, correctly. No, you're, abso you're absolutely correct. Um, you know, for years I served on the theater committee, you know, um, as a delegate, then as chair, and then as chair of the negotiating committee. So when, f for years, I was basically the saber-rattler saber mm. on the committee, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I have Keith O'Quinn to thank for that, by the way. We were doing <laughs> Oklahoma, I believe, and and the, the, the rep came you. in looking for a, a delegate to the theater committee. He says, you know, that'd be good for you, you know? <laughs> and like an idiot, I get it. Yeah. So uh, if anybody wants to blame anybody for me being in this office, you can blame them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had a reputation of being, you know, you know the, 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 the guy that was angry all the time and, you know, standing behind Bill Moriarty and all this stuff. And, and so when, when I got elected, first call I got was one of the uh, principals at the Nederlander. 
And he calls me and says, hey, I just heard from the Labor Committee that the wacko got elected. <laughs> <laughs> so I need to find out if you're really a wacko. So we had lunch together, and, I, and he learned that I was a wacko. And, but, but that actually worked to our advantage because um, I was so strong on committee and, and you know, in, in you know, pushing musicians' rights and maintaining the minimums that the, the negotiations that we had in 2011 they were so afraid. They were so um, labor peace was a major, a major, uh, quite a major priority for them because of the strike. Because of the strike, and they had, they were still licking their wounds from the uh, the 2007 strike with the stagehands. Um, so basically, I came in with my list of demands. They they said, well, you know, why don't we do it this way? And we ended up with a with, and we hadn't had a, re uh, a raise in like four years. I don't mm -hmm. know if you remember I that. Do, we, yeah. got, we got one raise in five in a five year yeah. over five years. So I was able to get to continue the moratorium on the minimums. So the minimums are still in place until 2016, and we got a, a significant increase in a five year deal and every year of that deal. So I I do feel really good about that. Um, I have to say that. Uh, the relationship, you know, it's all about labor relations, you know, and there is give and take. Bargaining is bargaining, um, but I'm, I'm, I feel strongly that the league respects local eight or two now more mm -hmm. than they ever have before. It and seems, it seems yeah. absolutely true. Um, Bob, maybe briefly, could you just talk about your time at Chorus Line because there that at that time there was. Walkers within the uh, within the trumpet section. Maybe just share what right. that was because well, a lot I, of people wouldn't know about that at this stage of the yeah. game. And that was basically my doing because I had I'd had an experience with a show previous to that in the actually it was the same theater, Schubert Theater I believe, where we uh, and we had an on stage band and it was like seventeen eighteen guys or whatever. But so then they hired some walkers, and but these walkers. Didn't didn't have to play, you know, and uh, so when chorus line came up and it was going to go into that same theater, I knew whatever the minimum was. I knew they were we were under it, and they would have to hire walkers. So I immediately went to the conductor. I said, "Listen, you know, I did a show previously, and uh, the walkers uh, didn't have to play. They weren't obligated to play." And I found that was just just crazy. In other words, they're getting a, a, a paycheck for the minimum, and they literally had to do nothing for it, at least in most cases. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was, by the way, an improvement compared to what it was historically before that. But that's another story. But the thing is, uh, so he, I said, well, why don't we just get the guy who's subbing here, and we'll, you know, we'll uh, have him be on the payroll as a, as a walker, but have him agree to play. In other words, so we had we had uh, three trumpets with him, four. So you know we divided it, divided it up. So each guy, uh, in effect, would have have two days off. Now, of course, this this immediately started some real uh, you know discourse or whatever within the orchestra because they say, well, the trumpet's got to walk, and I said, all you got to do is ask. You might get one yourself. <laughs> So I was I was lucky I asked. You know? So I felt good. I felt good about that. You know, I was able to, I was able to coach little league and, and and soccer and all these little things. You know, like uh, with my son and all that because I, I could I have a couple nights off a week and I took advantage of that to uh, sort of have a real life. You know, mm -hmm. so that was my story on that. I I don't really 
have much to add to it except that it, it, it was a, it was a good experience for me. And I, I remember when we had that first negotiate when we had that strike in seventy five was I think it? That's right. Yeah. And I remember the secretary of the union saying, I said, Well, you know, uh, I think it was Lou Russ, I said, Lou, what about the Walker situation? She said, Oh, those are gone. <laughs> well, I guess that didn't work out. Lou Russ Russo. He meant well. I mean I know he thought he was you know, that was gonna be the end of that. Uh, but you know, I had heard that, like in San Francisco, when they had a minimum, they required, uh, they insisted on the musicians, if even if they didn't want to use them, they had to come in and sit in the pit with a stand in front of them and whatever. You know, that seems kind of ridiculous. But at least they were trying to, you know, impress uh, the management that they were serious about, you know, utilizing the musicians, which everybody... Everybody admitted an orchestra is always better off with more people, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the interesting thing about it, you know. And just from the union's point of view, it's it's really kind of a bizarre situation now because I find myself and and you know all the great people that work here um, and more you know playing more of a societal societal role than a, a, you know a trade union role. You know, trade unions bargain good, fair wages, benefits, and working conditions that are favorable for the for the musicians. But now we're almost like the gatekeepers of the standard of live performance, mm-hmm. which is really a concern for the public and our audiences. It's not, you know, it shouldn't be the union out there because it really isn't about jobs. It really, I mean, for the most part, everyone I talk to agrees. You know, yeah. if if you know you're doing a show about Buddy Holly. Four musicians is an appropriate thing. We understand that. But don't tell me a show like Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, that had backing tracks, you know, for the whole string section, and tell me that that was an artistic, an artistic um, tool for them. Yeah. So it, it, it's kind of, a, kind of a strange thing. And we are, you know, it's important, I think, for all of us, because this is our union. We're all part of this. And it's, all about, it's, it's up to us to maintain that standard, because, you know, we love what we do. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah, I, I always like to say, like, you know, it, it's, it's it's part of bringing the human experience That's to right. the, the theater, having real orchestras, real players. Like if you want to you want to go to a baseball game and see a pitching machine that can be uh, turned up fast enough to strike everybody out, what kind of a human experience is that? You know, right. it's yeah. nothing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great, great analogy. Yeah. And you've, you've yeah. seen over the years, right? I mean, the three the three trumpet section is is is, is kind of a dinosaur now. Yeah. You can see that. Um, you got you got trombone players that are playing, you know, tenor, bass, and tuba. Yeah. That's, you know, that's I mean, always. It, it, Plus, they have to sweep up too. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's let's jump ahead now. I kind of wanted to talk about. Uh, the attitude on Broadway now because it's become more of a focal point and more of a mainstay in terms of the work. Of course, you know, 25, 30, 40 years ago, there was a, a, a large amount of studio work here in New York, and that seemed to be the, the most coveted work. Now I think having a Broadway show is, which I think has raised uh, the level of expectation in terms of performance. Um, I know just a real quick story for myself. The first time I ever sh- subbed on a show, I was in college, and I had come down to meet Burst Johnson, who's one of the great trombone players here in New York. And he was kind enough to let me come watch, uh, sit next to him at the show Annie at the time, the original Annie. And Tony Studd, who was a great uh, bass trombone player, but also played good tenor trombone, was the lead trombone player. And Tony had gotten a, uh, a spider bite on his leg. And, uh, <laughs> oh, and, he, uh, they, and this was, of course, pre-cell phone era and everything. And so... 
every Tony would say to Birch whenever there was a couple minutes off in the show, he'd go 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 onto the payphone and make a call and see if he can get anybody. So the whole show goes along, they can't get anybody. So the conductor, I don't remember the gentleman's name, but he was incredibly nice to me. He just looked down and he said, well, what about this guy? And uh, I said, I, I don't have my horn here. I'm not in the union. I, he goes, yeah, hey, you'll, you'll be fine. And Birch said, okay, you borrow my horn. I'll borrow Tony's horn. We proceeded to go out to dinner with uh, Tony. And then Tony treated everybody. We had, I think there was adult beverages consumed with that as well. <laughs> and uh, anyway, came back in and played the show. It was, I suppose, good enough. And, and, and uh, the conductor came down to me afterwards. He said, you can come back anytime you want. And, and back then, you paid your subs directly, so right. I got a check from, from Tony for that. I wasn't even... Anyway, my real point is, uh, you could certainly never do that now. It's a much it's a much more controlled and a much more... You know, the expectation is much higher, um, you know, from, from performance and what we are giving to the public. Um, I'd just love to hear from anybody, Keith or Tony, maybe about how you're... What you've seen in terms of the transition from, from a, a more relaxed thing to now... It's certainly it's certainly more intense, but I think in a, in many ways it, it, it's gone in a positive direction. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the level of uh, of tension, if you will, in a Broadway situation is kind of comes from the top down. Mm-hmm. If the conductor's cool, right. like this show I'm on uh, right now, this conductor is so great, and it makes you know everyone's job much easier. Um, but a lot of times, uh, you know, it's it's not not that way. Um, as to your point about the, like the the work changing, I, I think um, you know Broadway used to be used for many guys to supplement their recording income, and now it's as you say it's flip flop completely. So it's it's almost like any recording income you might get or other gigs is, is a supplement to your Broadway income, which is kind of for you know better or worse your your bread and butter right now. Mm-hmm. And, and and we're you know we're we're lucky to have it. It, it seems to break records every year. They're selling more tickets and it's flourishing. So it, it's it's good that the minimums are intact at least for for you know for foreseeable future, and you know we'll, we'll be in, hopefully in, in pretty good shape. Mm-hmm. Keith, have, have you seen like the well the uh, transition over the? Past? I think it's changed a lot. In the first show I subbed on was a show called Let My People Come. Uh, <laughs> And uh, it was back, yeah, it was back in the back in the seventies for Joe Patrizzo, uh, and uh, in those days you just went, you you watched the show, but there was no book to take home with you or anything, and and that show was the, the musicians were off the stage, just a little off the stage, and the whole cast was nude. You know, I mean, completely nude. Keith watched that book like ten times. Yeah. <laughs> so, needless to say, watching the book was difficult. <laughs> and uh, I came out of there not knowing anything that had happened, really. And so when I subbed, you know, I was basically, it was like sight reading a show. And, uh, you know, of course, and nobody seemed to care. You know, it was fine. It was fine. Nowadays, you really have to prepare. I mean, I, I see guys that want to come in and watch the show two or three times, you know. Right. Um, and and it does really matter. The conductors really, it, it really comes from the top down. I mean, the, the guys who really um, are relaxed about it, have an open mind about it, it's much easier for the subs to relax and play better, I think. Mm-hmm. You know? But... Um, and the other thing that's changed a lot is the is the uh, doubling thing. But years ago, I mean, I, I I always concentrated my whole career on just playing tenor. 
now I really regret that because literally just about any show you get going to get called for now, at least 60 to 70 percent of them, they're going to want you to play bass trombone, which I'm terrible at, you know. So uh, I did one show on where I doubled on bass trombone and. I say that was the worst section I've ever played in, and I was the only guy. <laughs> but uh, but uh, so you know, in a lot of ways, uh, that's put a lot of pressure, and that's because of the the bands getting smaller and smaller. But the quality on Broadway is so much better now, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think it's been a big improvement, you know, mm. in, in a lot of ways. You know? Yeah, cool. I wanted to uh, to address the doubling issue, and, and, and both from the trumpet perspective, but for us as trombone players, um, I think it's it's you know it's significant. And Randy, maybe you could speak to it because you're, you're certainly one of the premier uh, doublers in New York, and and I'm always amazed because when I hear you play tuba, you sound like a tuba player. But of course, you're you're fundamentally a trombone player. But maybe talk about your a little bit about your approach to doubling and how you apply that to when you're doing a Broadway show. Well. When I play, I consider myself mainly a tenor player, but when I play the other stuff, the only thing, I mean, except for like trying to get the notes out, the thing I'm thinking about is if I was playing lead, how would I want the bass trombone player to play, or how would I want the tuba player to play? So I'm kind of thinking, while I'm playing, well, how would I relate to this person playing the lower stuff, and I play it the way I would want to hear it as as a tenor trombone player. So I, I may not be the loudest. I'm definitely not the loudest. I'm not the best in terms of range on any instrument, but I kind of think more musically and how to just kind of fit it within the, the parameters that, that I feel comfortable with if I was leading the section. And uh, it just seems like the necessity of playing those instruments is... I don't think I would have made a living if I didn't play the bass trombone or the tuba, because for mm. a couple of years, like Mary Poppins, it was bass trombone and tuba, and that was my main thing for like three and a half years. And mm-hmm. if I just played tenor, uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't have been asked. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's hard, I think, for people coming in that they do have to have that experience and, and also play it well enough. It's not just enough to own the acts and kind of learn on the job. Which, which I actually did, you know, I think I would always get called in and, and I'd be, you know, over my head, yeah. you know, and then I'd learn on the job, but I think people were more lenient back then. And they said, well, you know, give him time, he's all right, he's, he's not a jerk. So. Yeah, it's, it's not good enough to be a doubler anymore. You really need to play that instrument, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know. That's really, that's good advice from both of you, and I think that's uh, hopefully young people in school right now that's, will heed that advice because I think it's really important. And Randy, I really appreciate what you just said about how you approach, musically approach that, and you can hear that in your playing. There's no question mm-hmm. about it. Um, one of the things that I find you know challenging as a, as a musician who plays on Broadway is, of course, the tentative nature of, of shows and how long they run. Uh, we all alluded to it in the in the intro that uh, you know some of the shows last uh, forty eight hours and, and once in a while you get on a show like yeah. Chorus Line that runs I, fifteen years. Everyone I did closed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know I, I wanted to just kind of talk about how you guys approach uh, even just kind of from a mental perspective dealing with the lock in, which now that's I think part of the, the the process as well is as musicians we have go through what's called the lock-in period where you're not allowed to take off except maybe some extraordinary circumstance but basically you're not allowed to take off 
during the entire run of previews and then basically through the first week well, after actually, opening. Actually, if, if, I, if I may, it's, yeah. it's 24 performances from the first public performances. If the previews are longer than 24 performances, that lock-in period is over. Okay. okay. Wow, that's uh, good, good info right there. Thank you. Um, but how do you um, how do you guys, Tony? Maybe you're you're just finishing your lock-in at uh, mm -hmm. Honeymoon in Vegas. But knowing that a, a show could run, you know, two weeks after it opens, and then obviously you're hoping for a two, three, four year run. How do you kind of like uh, look at it when you? approaching a new show it's hard because there's like there's so there's so little certainty uh, but you just you know you treat it like it's going to be around and you hope it's going to be around and if it is great and if it's not then you you know you you know bob what do i do but it is hard and and our lock-in was particularly long as tino said we we, we exceeded the the 24 pre previews so we were able to take off uh there was like a gray period where we're allowed to take off at the discretion of the MD who was totally cool with us taking off. Mm -hmm. So um, so we were able to get a couple subs in. Uh, you know, don't want me to go down there. <laughs> no, I don't want that. <laughs> they don't want that. No, but it, it, was, it was great because we get, you know, now that we're, we're opening, now we actually have a couple people in our back pocket that we can call in a, in a, in a jam. Mm. Um, but um, as far as the uncertainty, I, uh, I, don't, I, I don't have an answer because it's I've only been doing it 28 years. Maybe if I do it 50 <laughs> years, I'll figure out an answer. But, but I, I, there's no, there's no rhyme or reason. I'm, you know, I'm nervous every day. I look out in the audience because we're on stage, and you see empty seats, and you're like, oh boy, here we go. You know, yeah. It's, yeah. it's tough to swallow. You know, it's a yes. tough pill to swallow. And I know the actors deal with that on a regular basis, but as musicians, we're in the pit, and we don't really know who's out there. But when you're on stage, you kind of have a bird's eye view of empty seats in some cases. So yeah. we're, you know, we're. You cross your fingers and you just go every day and you know go straight ahead and, and hope that things are going to be cool. Yeah, well said. Um, I think on the flip side of it, you can get on a show like a chorus line that ran 15 years. And Bob, maybe you could speak to this. Um, one of the things, of course, that's what you want is having that that steady income and the certainty of having the job. That's what we all crave as as human beings and as musicians, of course. But how did you uh, keep your musical creativity you've always been great about doing a lot of other work but did you have an approach that you used while you were in that 15-year run that, that kept you kind of musically sane well uh at that particular time in the business uh, you know uh things were things were pretty good for everybody you know and there was a lot to do so you know there was there was always a uh, things to do in the daytime for the most part and and bands to play in and this and that and the other so you, you sort of just treated the gig as a uh, a way to subsidize playing music you know mm -hmm. I mean <laughs> some people might be offended by that but and I understand there's some people actually really love playing in the pit every night and all that but uh, I always felt that the idea of being in a pit was not ever fun to me you know, in fact, even even when I played on stage, even though uh, I always found I got a little more of a kick out of that. You know, there was a little more you know response with the audience, and you know you get a little something out of that. But uh, you know, playing in the pit is sort of like that that uh, line looking for love in all the wrong places is <laughs> not going to happen. <laughs> you know, it's it's really a job, and it's a tough job. Uh, looking back on it, uh, uh, you know. It's just unfortunate that's that's what we got now, you know. That's the 
And we're lucky to have it, but it's it's a double-edged sword. Uh, but, uh, you know, keeping, keeping other things going, teaching, school, you know, uh, all that, try to, you know, juggle things as much as you can because then when the show closes, you're not totally left out in the dark. Uh, but uh, I know what course like when, when I got the call for the job, I was about the eighth trumpet player. They had called everybody and turned it down because it was off-Broadway. It was an off-Broadway show. Right. Right. So the scale was really low, and uh, the prospects for it to coming to Broadway were pretty poor. Uh, you know, and I remember when we did the first preview downtown, we're standing backstage and listening to the dialogue and saying, like, well, <laughs> this is not going to be happening, you know. But <laughs> luckily we were all really wrong. <laughs> Turned out to be people, what people loved, you know, so you, you can't, you never know about these things. You know, Tony's, Tony's show, uh, is, from what I read about it, sounds like a great show. Uh, it's just time of year. It's not a great time for business, you know. It's not like it's booming out there, but you know things will pick up because like the the people who sell packaged out of town, they look at the shows different than than we do. They see they go really by the reviews. If they see the reviews are good, they'll push those tickets to the parties that are coming to the uh, to town in uh, you know May, June, or July. If those reviews are bad, they're going to skip over your show because uh, they can't guarantee the show will be open. When the yeah. party comes to town, so that there's some long range effects there, you know. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, one of the things that I, I kind of forgot about, but I, and you just kind of addressed it, Bob. When you're in a pit, how do you guys think about just the physicality of the issue? I mean, I just got done doing the run yeah. at Pippin, which we were the trumpet and trombone were set up right in between the drums and the timpani yeah. and the percussion. It was very, it was, a, it was a very difficult situation, although. We had a very, it was a great pit. We had an amazingly great conductor, Charlie Alterman, who made everybody feel comfortable. Yeah. Every, it was great musicians around us, so everybody worked to, to get around it. But how do you, Keith, you've been in so many different situations. How do you approach when you're physically in a, in a, in a difficult uh, situation that you have Boy, to go every day and deal with it? It's, it's really hard, you know. Uh, I, mean, I mean, it's basically a lot of times it's just you just have to make yourself get used to it and just this is what it's going to be and you learn to play that way i remember when i was doing uh will rogers follies and you know uh, billy byers wrote these beautiful trombone ballad solos one of them is really goes on a long time and really high very exposed and you were just playing with the string section that was like on the eighth floor of the theater, <laughs> and the acoustics were terrible, you know. And um, I remember the first time I played it, I started playing, and you're just the sound and the exposure and everything. It was like you just started getting that nanny goat thing, uh, you know. And, uh, yes, I did. <laughs> and it's like, so I finished the thing, and I remember Johnny Frost going, relaxing, huh? You know, something like that. And, uh, and, and, you know, I thought, boy, I don't know if I'll ever get this. But after playing it for a while, you just kind of like, that becomes the sound that you deal with, and you just... After a while, it became pretty easy to do because you just are used to it. But I, it's it's very tough, you know. And uh, I I don't I don't don't really have an answer I for think, it. I think one of the tricks I use is that I set up my practice room at home very dark, <laughs> <laughs> stand light. 
put a mannequin around me, <laughs> you know, and then have my wife come in every now and then and say, shh. <laughs> do, you remember, do you remember? Genius, Bob. That is genius. Do you remember Superstar? Yeah, yeah. What yeah. we went through with Superstar? Oh, yeah, that was so Between cool. the two guitars right over here in front of us yeah. and then Judas falling on us every other yeah, night. Yeah, <laughs> The pesky Judas. Yeah. They, they, didn't, they didn't understand why I wanted a net over my head. <laughs> well, you look, it's like twice it's happened. Twice, literally, they, they, there was a rake stage and two actors fell into the pit. Yeah. Right on top of the trumpet table. <laughs> How did you deal with it at Pippin? What did you think? You know, I think I... I, I, I we would play with headphones on. Yeah. So I just, I actually was using earplugs, and then I would put the headphones on on top of the earplugs and just kind of get myself in a little cocoon and try to, like, you know, I could, Dave Trigg was the trumpet player sitting next to me, and we'd just kind of, kind of get to the point where we could hear each other and, and try to, like, yeah. Kind of like what you said, I think you, you just, you gotta just get through it. And, and, uh, you know, what's that famous Louis Armstrong thing where he said whenever he played with a bad rhythm section, he'd turn on the rhythm section in his head. And it, in a, obviously in a different kind of way, but just kind of get into that, trying to feel what your sound is going to be like yeah, yeah. Be, with the earplugs in and all that, because it's an obviously different. And especially easy. playing next to a timpani is like, the yeah. pitch is, you know. And I mean, like I said, at Pippin, at least it was fortunate we had such good musicians around that everybody was sensitive and trying to make it work. Um, this is something I was wondering about, like, I, it hasn't happened to me uh, uh, except for maybe one time, but... Um, most of you guys have all had to move from uh, a successful show, or I shouldn't say had to, but have made the choice to move from a successful running show to another show. Randy, especially for yourself, recently you've had a couple of moves from shows that clearly were going to run for a while. Um, what's, your, what's your thought process about uh, when, when another show is presented to you? Uh, how, how do you evaluate moving? Well, I left Mary Poppins because I just... I was kind of getting drugged with the music. You know, it's it's great music, it's, it's classic, but, you know, to do it that many times, it just, I was starting to feel like I was going to lose it. And, 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 you know, no, no one remembers that you played well, but if you lose it, they're going to remember that, and they'll know what your name was. So I, I started to put out feelers, and uh, I found out there was this Adams Family thing coming up, and I just thought, mentally, I needed to leave because I was bringing it home. I was starting to bitch and moan at home, and you know that stuff has to stay there. You can't darken the family life with your, you know your other stuff. And then, so Adams Family worked out for a while, and then uh, I did a jingle for this Book of Mormon show, and I don't think the contractor at that point was looking to hire me for the show. It was just a jingle. And I, I thought, you know, Adam's family's going to close in about six months. Someone written by South Park, it's got to be at least a year. So I thought, I'll get another six months if I can get this gig. So I actually told the contractor, I really want to do this gig. If you haven't heard it, I really want to do it. I really want to do it. And I was, I, I thought it was kind of annoying, but, but it got me the gig. <laughs> and... And I've been lucky that way. It's just been like nine years now that I've, I went from one to another. Hmm. But it's luck. I really think it's luck for, well, for me. You know. So also, well, you can't discount the fact that you bring a very high level of playing to, yeah, to everything you do. And the contractor obviously knows that. So by you going to him and requesting that, he's going to treat you with the respect that uh, you deserve, You know, I, I think. Um, but it's luck. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, uh, speaking of contractors, it's uh, it's an important part of the Broadway fabric, are the gentlemen and ladies who put together the orchestra. Um, and there are a number of uh, excellent contractors here in New York who we all work for. Um, how do you guys, because I, 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 I had this happen to me once where a, a contractor was looking for somebody for a show, and because I had had this long association with the Rolling Stones, I guess he thought of me as more of a rock and roll player, fair enough, and asked if I was comfortable playing in a big band. But meanwhile, I had spent six years on Frank Sinatra's band and two years with Buddy Rich and uh, some little bit of time with Woody Herman. But it's not his fault for asking. That's a fair question to ask, and he just didn't know that side of my playing that I, th that I feel comfortable doing that as well. Um, but how do you guys approach um, trying to avoid getting stereotyped by contractors? Because in fairness to them, they, I think they have to because they're working with so many musicians in this pool here in New York. How do you differentiate yourself? Obviously, all of these gentlemen are at the top of the game and, and, and at the top of the food chain in terms of working here in New York, but they weren't always at that, uh, at that point. And how do you look at making yourself known to the contractors, getting in better with them without, without annoying them, and then also trying to avoid getting stereotyped in terms of what you actually do? Tony, do you have any uh, thoughts on um, that approach? Well, as far as getting involved with, you know, getting the contractors to, to know, know you, I, I don't know. I, I got really lucky. It, it used to be uh, that, um, well, I'm sure to some extent it still is, where the, the contractors, they can't know everything about every instrument, so they'll, they'll call players. And as I mentioned earlier, the reason I got my first gig was because the contractor called Bob, and Bob said, why don't you call Tony? I, I'm busy. But So it, it kind of worked uh, for me without even having to contact the contractor. But um, people move to town and they call call me and say, "Well, how do I, what do I do? Do I send my resume to John Miller or or, or how he joins or whatever?" And I think some of them are, are cool with you sending them unsolicited resumes, and others are not. You kind of, I mean, you, you roll the dice and see what happens. But I, I was never one for like picking up the phone and saying, "Look, I'm here. I'm in town. Uh, give me work." You know, mm -hmm. I, I that's that's not me. But but some people do that and are successful with it. Mm -hmm. um, as far as um, you know, kind of just just kind of staying in the game. Uh, I think if you're subbing at several different places, which you know you would don't have to deal with a contractor, you can call the individual players on the shows and say, "Look, you know, can I sub?" And if you sub at a few different places, word will get out eventually, and uh, these guys will be looking for uh, um, you know to cover an orchestra, and you know all the regulars are busy, and maybe they'll call up the trumpet player at Wicked and say, hey, uh, who are your subs over there that are good? Because, you know, we, I, I'm putting together something and everyone I normally call is busy. Mm -hmm. I think it just kind of snowballs like that. I don't know that you, per se, have to call, you know, cold call a, mm -hmm. a contractor. Mm -hmm. I think it will, you know, if you if you deal with the players on that level, it'll hopefully, you know, come around to you in a, mm -hmm. in a positive way through a contract. I think that's great advice. I mean, I know for me, I mentioned at the start, the... Um, Fortunately, knowing Keith a little bit, and he was very generous before I had established any kind of reputation at all in New York, you put me on the sub list at, uh, at Starlight, and that helped helped a lot. And you were always always very kind to me in that way, and every time you've had a show. But I would I would assume you'd feel similar to Tony in terms Absolutely, of coming through yeah. players and, and getting known that yeah, way. Yeah, I think, uh, especially nowadays, I think subbing is really the best way to get involved with it. You know, I mean... Uh, I know a couple of the contractors that I've worked for really don't like to get calls. They don't like to get unsolicited things. 
there's a couple of guys that don't mind it at all, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think subbing is definitely, definitely the way, you know. Um, and and I think it's good for the contractors because nobody knows the players as well as the players that are playing with them. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, the contractors just can't, they can't go around and hear these guys, you know. So uh, the, by asking the players that they, ha you know, have faith in and respect for, you know, they get, a, I think they get a lot better subs, uh, better new guys, you know. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think subbing is definitely the way to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. Keith, let's stick with you for a second. Um, one of the things that's part of the job, which Tony is in, in, in the midst of that as well, is what's called the in-house contractor, which I guess you would refer to the overall contractor as the outside contractor or just the contractor. But the in-house contractor is the person who sort of manages the day-to-day uh, goings-on as far as the orchestra, making sure there's somebody in the chair at the right time dealing with the payroll. And I know you would never say this, but every show I've done where they've uh, had in-house contractors, they've always said, we go to Keith for That's advice. Right. They say, he's the no, one. I go to Keith. <laughs> <laughs> and, they, and I know you would never say this, but even just finishing up with uh, Pip and Rick Dolan, you were saying, oh, Keith's like the godfather. He knows the whole thing. He helped us all get started. And, Very nice. And um, <laughs> so just maybe explain, because a lot of people wouldn't know what an in-house contractor is. Maybe just talk a little bit about what you're you're, when you are, which you normally are on Kinky Boots, I know you're not, but typically you are the in-house contractor. What is that role and what do you do? What's your day-to-day -day activities well, with that? Uh, I mean, I, I got into it. Fortunately, John Miller gave me a shot at it uh, when uh, I, I was working on How to Succeed, and uh, Scott Cuny was the contractor. And so he started letting me uh, do it when he was out, and I had just gotten some, a new Mac computer you know back in those days it was like one of the high-end ones with like about I don't know no memory you know but uh, I started like fooling around with payrolls and stuff and I kind of said oh, it's kind of interesting you know? so Scott started letting me uh, get involved with him and subbing when he would go away and stuff and so John gave me a shot on this show Titanic that was coming in and it was a big orchestra like 26 28 pieces or something and uh, so I just got kind of thrown into the fire and you know I got help from the other guys that were around you know and uh, uh, basically the job is uh, you have to kind of be a bridge between the conductor and the orchestra and the orchestra and the management a little bit and the orchestra and the union uh, and uh, you know, I, I actually uh, got into where I really enjoyed doing it. It kind of kept me uh, more interested in, in the job because I wasn't just playing the same sh the show every night and going home. I, I was, you know, t taking care of others. So I, 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 I miss doing it right now, but Tony's doing it now. He's doing, I, I, they say he's like the greatest over there. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but uh, it's 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 kind of it takes a little while to get used to doing it. There's a little bit of a tightrope you're walking sometimes, but uh, most of the time I, I feel like I get closer to a lot of the subs and closer to a lot of the guys because we're talking outside the show about a lot of other stuff, and I I, I enjoy doing it. You know. Oh, cool. Well, you certainly did a great job with it. Everybody enjoys when you're the in-house, so it's, it requires the right kind of temperament, which you certainly have. 
Um, as we kind of wind down here, um, Tina, I want to direct a question to you. Um, I think there's, for all of us as musicians, there's an anxiousness about, of course, the future of Broadway. It's become such a focal point in terms of freelance work here in right. New York. Um, you know, I just read last week that uh, 2014 was the highest grossing highest year grossing. ever. Right. So from from the perspective of the finances, that seems to be in very healthy state. Yes. Uh, whether that helps us, I, I can't imagine that it hurts us, but that doesn't necessarily translate to us. But if you could uh, give us your o overview of the future of Broadway as it pertains to us as, uh, as, a, as a local and for musicians. Sure. I mean, when I started subbing on Broadway, I think it was 1986 or 87, around that time. And back then, and I actually might have been Bob who told me this, that Broadway was going to be dead in five years. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, that didn't turn out to be true. Um, no, I meant I was going to be <laughs> Um, you know, the, you, you know, 9/11 uh, was a big deal for theater, as sure. we all know. But I have to say, it has grown exponentially since then. There, the the uh, the the producers are actually having a problem right now because there's a glut of productions that are ready to play on Broadway, and they're basically hovering above, like like at an airport, waiting for real estate to open up. And what's happening is, um, and this is the only problem I can foresee, is that they're losing those productions because they can't wait forever to come in the show. So, you know, producers invest money. If they don't get a return on the money, then, you know, it's a problem for everyone. But I have to say, this year was a banner year for Broadway, without a doubt. We had 37 musicals running the last week of December. Um, that, I mean, it's, 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 it's huge. So um, Broadway is healthy. Um, it's one of the major gears in the machine that runs the tourist and economic engine of the city. Mm -hmm. um, it's It's... It's, it's important overall. I mean, when people come to New York City, it's unfortunate because it's, it's a in vast contract to what, contrast to what's going on at Lincoln Center, for instance. Because when people visit New York City, they stay in Midtown, they go to a Broadway show. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, this time of year for the Lincoln Center orchestras is not a good time of year. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, City Ballet does it right. They got the Nutcracker, so that's fine. They're always, you know, it's kind of a traditional thing. But, you know, the Met Opera always has a problem this time of year. The Philharmonic has had a hard time. Putting, putting, putting in seats. So I think just the nature of Broadway as a commercial um, product, I guess, is the best way to put it. Um, it's always, I think it's always going to attract some, you know, it's going to generate money. Otherwise, you know, they wouldn't be doing it. Our job, of course, is to make sure that we continue to be a vital part of that. And mm -hmm. that's, that's, mm -hmm. that's the difficulty. Mm -hmm. Do you see the future in terms of negotiating with the producers and, and that, it seems like... Thanks to your leadership, you know it's, it seems to be going in a much better direction than it was, say, ten or fifteen years ago. Do you do you anticipate that continuing in a in a positive direction in terms of negotiations? I, I don't anticipate anything in negotiations. Okay. Um, because um, you never know what you're going to expect. I would like to think that going forward, because the moratorium is up in 2016, so our next round of negotiations, the minimums will most probably be on the table. However, that being said. We've done a really good job in regard to the special situation status of some of these shows and, and, and actually working collaboratively with the league to make sure that these are genuinely special situations. As long as that relationship continues to work, I think they're going to be fine with the minimums. Mm -hmm. I really do. Because mm -hmm. they, they have the tool that they need in order to make the artistic decisions that they need to make in order to, to mount a show. problem, of course, is you know every now and then you get a producer, you know, from Australia, 
<laughs> I, I was on that show. <laughs> Guilty as charged, but it wasn't my production. I, 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 just, I, I, just playing the trombone. And, uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, it's 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 a tough it's a tough thing, you know, and. Um, you know, we, we fight the battles that we need to fight in order to maintain and protect you guys. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why that's why we have a union. Well, mm -hmm. I, I think I can speak for all of us. We really appreciate the great job uh, that you're doing yeah. and, and we'll right. continue yeah. to do. It's not just me, Mike. It's, it's the, the entire administration. We've got a great board. You know, mm -hmm. the governing board mm -hmm. is fantastic. The staff on this floor is second to none. The, the, the uh, stewardship in the theater department is unbelievable. You know, um, we've got some really good people. You know, some changes were made, obviously, yeah, and sure. uh, I think for the better. Yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. Um, well, as we wind down, I always like to finish uh, every interview that I do on the Bone to Pick series with asking everybody or the individual artists what they have advice for, for young players. Um, and I think this is a, a great time to just go down the list and have each one of you guys just, it can just be a, a brief thought. You can expound on it as much as you like. But if there's a young person out there who's, uh, looking to come to New York to be a musician, and in particular, since we're talking about Broadway, uh, trying to crack into it, um, what, what advice might you have for him? Maybe Bob would you can kick it off for us. Well, aside from being getting to a really good level on your instrument, it's really crucial uh, to not uh, disregard any particular style of music because all these things become uh, part of what you may be required to do uh, on a Broadway show. you got to have some sense of uh, how to interpret the music, and uh, you can only get that through listening and, and playing a lot, mm. you know, not just being good on your horn, but having, having a, an idea. Yeah, great point. Tony? Well, I certainly agree with Bob in that, you know, the more you can do, the more you'll work um, in terms of style and... and uh, you know, being accomplished on your instrument, but also um, there are a lot of good players that don't work because they're not they're not fun to be around. They're a drag. They're negative. They're um, you know. <laughs> I hear you. Why are you laughing? About that? <laughs> but no, I mean, like you can tell. I mean, these are all good people. Like you know, they're they're you know they're good folks, and and nobody wants to hire somebody who's who's gonna you know bring the whole thing down. So. I would just say I think the most important tool other than playing is just to just to be cool and, and be able to roll with the punches. Don't complain every time there's something wrong or it's too hot or too cold or my seat's That is know, so smoke. true. That yeah, is so you know. true. Yeah. 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 Good point, Randy. Well, I think I agree with Bob and Tony about, you know, learning your instrument, being nice and uh, generous with other people you work with. But I also I, I, I feel that a lot of younger players seem to be really experienced in Broadway and the other parts of the musical pictures may be lacking slightly so for, for me when I play with a younger player who's subbing I mean I can tell I can tell if they've not paid the dues in like some really crappy low-paying gigs and earned their way up the ladder their, their playing has much more life to it. It's it's a much more fun thing for me to play with someone that's a better balanced player and is adaptable like trumpet. You know, you ha you can have to be a lead player, but you also have to play the lower parts and and do them equally well and play different styles of music equally well. So I think the bigger picture of music is necessary and not just to be exclusively Broadway focused. Mm. 
Yeah, great point. Keith? Yeah, well, I totally agree with that. And uh, I think, you know, uh, you you got to just try to be the best musician you can. Forget about about the job and I mean the if you're if you're taking care of the music all the music that you, you can get hold of and play you're gonna get hired for something you know mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's so many guys come to New York now and they're just concentrating on getting this gig you know this job and they're not thinking about music you know and I think you know if you think about music and you go do just everything you can to be the best musician you can. The jobs are going to come, you know? mm-hmm. uh, and of course, you know it doesn't hurt to be a nice guy too. <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, incredibly well said. Tina, how about uh, your final thoughts on uh, well, young players coming in uh, from the union perspective? Well, I can't from the union perspective. Well, join the union and pay your dues, but, that's <laughs> 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 but I don't think it really is a union perspective. I think it's a musician perspective, and. Um, what er- what everybody has said is, is exactly right. I mean, when I was young, coming up and playing in the bands in the beginning, I remember uh, my first trumpet teacher telling me, you know, look good, sound good, and show up on time. <laughs> you know, that yeah. was, that was yeah. basically it. Cool. Well, listen, I want to thank all of you guys. I know everybody's off to their shows, and Tina, you, you're the hardest working man in show business here. <laughs> um, but I really appreciate you guys taking the time. I hope everybody out there got a lot out of this. I know I uh, was energized by this conversation, and, uh, and I appreciate your guys' candor and uh, insight into everything. So uh, so thank you. And uh, we will see all of you next time on Bone to Pick. <laughs>